0: Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Pray with me, please. Lord, your word is a light to our feet, a lamp for our path, and a We need light in this dark world, Lord. I pray you would take your word, apply it to every situation, every heart within here, that uh, it would do what it only can do, that's change a human life. Draw us to yourself, Lord. Wherever we are at with you, whether it be a savior, a sanctifier, an encourager, whatever is needed in this room, I pray you would be that to that person today. We ask in your name. Amen. Which principle would you prefer to prevail in human relationships? Love or justice? I suspect that your answer to that question would be, well, it all depends. For example... If someone blows by me on the 460 and gets pulled over, I can tend to have this smug satisfaction that they got exactly what they deserved. But last year, after I picked up some pizza to head to Rick Worley's to watch football, I got pulled over for not completely stopping at a stop sign. Now, I didn't want justice that time, I wanted mercy. And thankfully only got a warning now tell me though why is it when I saw those flashing blue lights I didn't pump my fist in celebration because justice was about to occur we're funny people aren't we there are times when you would like love to triumph over justice especially when we ourselves are the ones in trouble with justice but at other times, it does not seem quite right for the claims of justice to be outweighed by compassion. And in a world deeply affected by human sin, there is no avoiding this tension. It's an aspect of the fallenness of the world that we live in that very often love and justice simply cannot meet. And when we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying to the one who is both perfect in his love and yet still pure in his justice. And perhaps the greatest wonder of the kingdom for which we pray is that love and justice are always in perfect harmony. This is the profound mystery of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In these events, justice was done, and yet love also triumphed. Neither was compromised. One of my favorite verses concerning this is Psalms 85.10, where it reads, Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed one another. Of Jesus, John wrote, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, But grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now this is who we needed. Someone who was the only one who could live a sinless life. That's the truth part. But also sacrifice himself in our place. That's the grace part. On the cross, righteousness and peace kissed one another. Now, David's kingdom centuries before, though, could not solve this problem. In David's kingdom, the demands of justice and the claims of love were an irreconcilable contradiction. This is most clearly seen in David's conflict with his son, Absalom, who was attempting to destroy David and take over his kingdom. In this chapter, we will see David's intense love for his son, but... What about justice? It was a situation in which love and justice failed to meet. Look at verse 1 with me, please. And David numbered the people who were with him, and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. Then David sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, one-third under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the hand of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I also will surely go out with you myself. But the people answered, You shall not go out, for if we flee away, they will not care about us, nor if half of us die will they care about us. But you are worth ten thousand of us now, for you are now more help to us in the city. And the king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. The situation at the end of chapter 17 had Absalom and his substantial army camped somewhere on the east side of the Jordan. David and those who have remained faithful to him were in the city of Mahanaim. And knowing that the enemy was soon to arrive, David numbered his troops, divided them into three companies, and placed Joab, Abishai, and Ittai as their commanders. In human terms, the kingdom of David depended upon this army. He knew that out there somewhere, a much greater numerical force was waiting. And the outcome of that conflict would determine the future For David's kingdom but even though David had a much smaller army he knows that God does not need a huge army in order to achieve victory like in the case of Gideon where the Lord took just 300 men and gave them victory God also delivered Israel out of Egypt without firing one shot and so even with a much smaller group David prepares them for battle the surprise in David's arrangement in the army was the appointment of Ittai the Gittite, who was a Philistine as a commander of one of the troops. And since Ittai was a leader of at least 600 Gittites, the division that he commanded may have been made up largely of foreigners who, like Ittai himself, had become faithful servants to David. Surprisingly, in this chapter, which is all about war, Several conversations are reported in great detail. The first of these conversations began when the king said to the men, I myself will go out with you. Now we know that David did not always escort his men into battle, but there were many occasions on which he did. And this conflict with Absalom was the most important and difficult one in David's life. And so the importance of the king leading the remnant of his people in this confrontation seemed obvious to King David. However, the people had a different perspective. There are 10,000 of us, but only one of you, they argued. They knew that Absalom's soldiers would go after the king and not worry about the soldiers. David accepted their decision. In reality, I'm sure he didn't want to fight his son anyway. Not only that, it has been over four decades since he was that boy that brought down Goliath. And so he is quite a bit older now. In fact, David is around 61 years old at this time. Look, I'm 53 in a couple months, and I'm not fighting nobody. Well, unless they beep at their horn at Connie when she's trying to change lanes, then I'll pull them out of that car, but you already know that story. <laughs> the point, however, is that the people recognize the importance of their king. The, king depend- the kingdom depended on the king, and so it wouldn't be a smart thing for the king to join them in battle. And you know why it wouldn't be smart? Because if you take the king out of the kingdom, all you are left with is dumb. Get it? King, dumb, kingdom. It doesn't really matter. Uh, verse 5, please. Now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains orders, concerning Absalom it may have been the king who spoke but these were the words of a father Absalom was a traitor and a killer who quite frankly deserved to die that would be justice but he was also a son whom the father loved love demanded gentleness not because Absalom deserved gentleness but for the sake of the father who loved him who always saw him as the young man Absalom. David's anxiety was less about the victory that his troops sought than the love for the one against whom they were advancing. In a brief flashback here, we hear David's love for Absalom put into words of command to his divisional commanders. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Think about how gracious David is being here. Absalom had stood at the gate in Jerusalem and attacked his father. But now David stands by a city gate and instructs his soldiers to go easy on his son. And yet Absalom certainly hadn't been gentle with his father. He had murdered Amnon, driven David out of Jerusalem, seized his throne, violated his concubines, And now he himself was out to kill King David. That doesn't sound like the kind of man that you would want to protect. But if David had one fault, it was the pampering of his sons. But before we criticize David too harshly, we should remember that David was a man after God's own heart. And not only that, let us all be thankful that we too have a Father in heaven, who hasn't dealt with us according to what our sins deserve. Psalm 130 verse 3 says, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? That's why the gospel is called good news. In his grace, he gives us what we don't deserve, and in his mercy, he doesn't give us what we do deserve. Deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. Matthew Henry wrote concerning this, How David renders good for evil. Absalom would smite David only, while David would spare Absalom only. Never was the unnatural hatred of a father more strong, nor the natural affection so strong for a father for his son. Hatred to a kind father and love for the rebellious son. I love the last comment of Henry here. He writes, "What a resemblance between God and the sons of mankind that God will be gentle with the child until justice has to fall." But also notice it says that all the people heard these words. This will be important to remember later on in the lesson. Verse six, please. So the people went out into the field of, <coughs> excuse me, of battle against Israel. And the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. The people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David, and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that that day. For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. A slaughter of 20,000 men. It was Josephus who said there were about 4,000 of Israel. That puts the odds at 5 to 1, which means that all of David's men, who would have to be in essence 80% stronger if they were to win. But they didn't need that. Why? Verse 8 tells us, the woods devoured more people that day than the sword did. Now, the most likely interpretation for that was there was more fatal accidents in the wild undergrowth and treacherous terrain than those who were actually killed in combat. Or another possible understanding of it is that the forest destroyed so many because of the advantages that it gave to David's men. Perhaps because of the pits, the cliffs, and the unevenness of the ground, more were slain in the pursuit through the forest than who were actually slain in the battle proper. And because of the trees and the underbrush, Absalom's army also couldn't be sent in all at once. They would have to be sent in by groups. And so the terrain would favor the experienced soldiers of David, who could then fight those coming at them hundreds at a time instead of thousands at a time. It would be the equivalent of putting up a defense where a numerically superior army would have to go through a very narrow pass. You don't have to defeat the whole army. You just have to kill them as quickly as they come through that pass. Although one commentator did say this, Now it was as though the land itself turned against the people to whom it had been given by the Lord. Look at verse 9 with me. Then Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree, and his head caught in the terebinth. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth, and the mule which was under him went on. So we see that God did not need a sword to stop the rebel Absalom. He simply used the branch of a tree. Now, how do you think that tree caught Absalom? Many commentators believe that it was his hair that got tangled up in all the branches. And if that was the case, it would mean the very thing that he was most proud of, his hair, was the very thing that ended up causing his death. Now, I wouldn't be dogmatic about that, but it also certainly wouldn't surprise me either. Although we could say that it was a hairy situation that he was in that would one day lead to his death. Hair today, gone tomorrow. I'll be here all week. Tip your waitress. And so he's left hanging on this tree. Now the Bible says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so God makes sure that he doesn't die in battle, for in that way, he would have some degree of valor. In this humiliating way, Absalom lost the kingdom. It says he dangled there between heaven and earth. He was helpless, and he was powerless. You could make the case, as with so many others that day, the forest had also captured Absalom. One old commentator wrote, there he hung between heaven and earth, as unworthy of either, as abandoned of both. Earth would not keep him, heaven would not take him, hell therefore opens her mouth to receive him. Now, do we know of another son of David who hung on a tree between heaven and earth and watched his own death occur over a six hour period? The big difference is. Absalom hangs on a tree because of his pride, while Jesus hung on a tree because of his humble obedience. Philippians chapter 2 says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Look at verse 10. Now a certain man saw and told Joab and said, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. So Joab said to the man who told him, You just saw him, and why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, "Though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Beware lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise I would have dealt falsely against my own life, for there is nothing hidden from the king." And you yourself would have set yourself against me. And so this man comes upon Absalom, sees him, and runs back to report the news to Joab. I mean, you would think this would be a golden opportunity for a soldier to forever endear himself to David and David's men by killing Absalom. But here's what I want us to consider this morning. Put yourself in Absalom's place. When he realized that that man didn't kill him when he had the chance, what thought would have run through your mind? I think, at this time, Absalom... Excuse me... I think at this time, Absalom, knowing the character of David, probably realized that David has asked them to spare his son. This is all conjecture, but maybe, just maybe, he felt some degree of relief and believed he would once again be shown mercy from King David. But do you know how long Absalom has spurned this mercy? Eleven years. And sadly, now there will be no more mercy, but as Hebrews 10 says, only a fearful expectation of judgment. Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. The hymn put it like this, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, Hide me, O my Savior, hide, till the storm of life is past, Safe into thy haven guide, O receive my soul at last. If you haven't, I urge you and I plead with you to come to him while he may still be a Savior and not a judge. In verse 11, Joab hears this report from this man and just comes unglued. The King James says, He cometh unglueth. Not really erase that. <clears throat> but Joab could hardly believe his ears. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Literally, Joab mimicked the man's words Behold, you saw? And that's all that you did? What possessed you to see and do nothing? Why did did you not then just strike him to the ground? Job said, I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a belt. This is why you should pray for me. Because when he offers to give the young man a belt, in my mind I picture him as one of those guys who purposely wear their pants around their knees so you can see their daffy duck bloomers. Surely we are living in the last days. Now there is a hint in verse 11 that Joab had quietly spread the word that he would reward any soldier who killed the rebellious son. The thing is, everyone had heard David's command concerning Absalom back in verse 5, and no one objected. And so their silence was implicit acceptance of David's words. The soldier who could have won the reward refused to kill Absalom for two reasons. He didn't want to disobey the king, and also he wasn't sure Joab would defend him if the king found out about it. Verse 14, please. And Joab said, I can't linger with you. And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. And ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. So Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing Israel, for Joab held back the people. We saw that the soldier who encountered Absalom hanging from the tree didn't dare touch him, but Joab had a completely different agenda. And this is not the first time that Joab had done things behind the back of King David. He and his brother Abishai, out of a personal vendetta, had murdered Abner, Saul's general, without the knowledge or the permission of David. It was also Joab who has orchestrated the reconciliation of David and Absalom. But now Joab ignores David's orders and has him killed. We see Joab thrust three spears into Absalom's heart. But the Hebrew word there for heart can also be translated chest, which is probably more accurate, since verse 15 tells us that the ten young men actually killed him, which wouldn't have been needed if he had had three spears in his heart. Look at verse 17 with me. And they took Absalom and cast him into a large pit in the woods, and laid a very large heap of stones over him. Then all of Israel fled, every one to his tent. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley, for he said... I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and to this day it is called Absalom's Monument. At one time, Absalom was the most popular man in the entire kingdom, but he ended ended up being buried in a pit and covered with stones. In those days, that's what you did with human waste, And that's what you did with garbage. This is Joab's commentary on the life of Absalom. Absalom ends up in a pit. And whenever you and I attempt to rebel, manipulate, whenever we seek our own kingdom instead of the kingdom of God, the result will always be the same. We'll always end up in a pit. Always. Always. During his life, Absalom erected to himself a huge monument of stones. In his death, however, he was given a different monument. A pile of stones was heaped over his body. Now, we read in Deuteronomy 21 what could be done to rebellious sons. It reads, this will be the parents. And they shall say to the elders of the city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice, he is a glutton, and he is a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now this isn't talking about a kid who just refuses to eat his lima beans. This is for a truly rebellious man who has refused all pleadings from his parents to change. And so you were left with no choice but to remove him from the community, sort of like a cancer. Now, there is no record of this stoning ever having been carried out. But you've got to admit, it's a pretty good threat and deterrent. If I would have lived back then, my dad would probably have kept a big rock on the coffee table just as a reminder to me. But after Absalom was thrown into a pit, stones were thrown upon him, which is sort of a a fulfillment of the regulation given there in Deuteronomy. Now apparently his three sons there in verse 18 had died young, so there was no one left in his family to perpetuate his name. So he himself erected a pillar to keep his name alive. But the thing is, truly great men and women are not usually obsessed with how history will remember them. In fact, history does remember them because they were not self-absorbed. Now, I'm sure that there are exceptions to this generalization, but Absalom was one of those men who wanted to be great and wanted to be remembered as great. But rather than earn a reputation for greatness, he built a monument to himself. Now, there is in Jerusalem a pillar today in the Kidron Valley called Absalom's Pillar. However, the archaeologists more accurately date it to about the 2nd century AD, and they believe that it was built by someone during that time. But during the Middle Ages, the inhabitants of Jerusalem would sometimes bring their rebellious sons down to this monument. The father would then throw stones at the pillar, and then they would tell their sons, this is what becomes of a rebellious son. But what interests me is the contrast between the heap of stones where he was buried and the monument that he had set up for himself. You see, Absalom set up a monument for himself because he wanted to be remembered as a great man. But instead, his memory is used pejoratively. The lesson for us this morning is the life you lead is the monument you will leave. The way you live is how people are going to remember you. And so the only way to leave a great legacy in this world is to live a righteous life. Absalom, however, wants to have a great legacy by having his place in the history of the nation without living a godly life. But you can't have it any other way other than the way that the Lord prescribes it to be done. The greatest monument we can ever build to ourselves for God is to live a righteous and a holy life before Him. And then the monuments will take care of themselves. As we close, please listen carefully to me on this. Wise is the person who can learn to live their life in reverse. What I mean is we live in a society that constantly bombards us with the message to quickly gratify whatever desire we may feel at that moment. We are told that we should look out for number one. You only live once, and so go for the gusto. But the prudent and wise person would ask, where does that kind of thinking eventually lead? What is the end of such philosophy? We should live our lives in such a way that if the Lord does grant us a deathbed experience, I don't want to look back over my life in regret, but instead have a satisfying sense of purpose that while certainly not perfect, I lived a life that was pleasing to my God. and You cannot put a price tag on that. Father, burn that into our hearts this morning that we would live for you, and only for you, Lord, that as the song says, the things of this earth would grow strangely dim, and you would grow, Lord, more attractive to us every day. ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Being the first Sunday of the month, we'll be having communion. Ask Pastor John and Elder Haynes to come up, please.